I just noticed, actually, I usually don't go in the other room to get something, but you can't hear the, uh, the chime in there, so, so maybe we could have someone just let them know that we're starting. Yeah, we need to have a, someone with a bell, maybe, a tri- one of those triangles to go in there, and ring the triangle, so everyone can come in. You can be turning in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, we'll be in verses um, 12 to 17. as we continue our series in the book of Revelation. So. Could someone go in the other room, one of our ushers perhaps, and just because I can see that there's no one in there who knows what's going on out here. So they're all just chatting and having a good time, which is great. But uh, probably good for them to move in here. <laughs> uh, and I apologize, I didn't introduce myself, partly because I was dedicating my granddaughter, I guess. My name is Paul Buckley, I'm the lead pastor here. And welcome, we're glad you're here with us this morning. We're glad that King of Grace, our members and regular attendees are here, but as well as guests and, and recent visitors. Um, we pray God's blessing on you. Uh, we call ourselves a church family, uh, because that's kind of how Scripture describes local churches, like family. Uh, and we try to live that out, and we hope that you experience that here as you're with us. And so, wherever you might be coming from, whatever your background, whatever your needs and questions are, please just uh, let us know how we can help you. We, we trust that you feel welcomed, and like you would perhaps with uh, friends or family members, uh, that you can be here with us and enjoy God as we worship Him together. So we are doing a series in the book of Revelation. And we are learning about being faithful witnesses in a sometimes hostile world. And that's what this message is about for this week from Revelation chapter 2. And as you turn there, perhaps just some thoughts. Uh, We live at a time as a church and as the whole church really throughout the world amidst, at least for our country, massive cultural change. Um, Things are are shifting. Things are changing. and, And you can see it in probably around you in real personal uh, anecdotes and so forth, but in the stats as well, church attendance uh, is way down. Basic Christian worldview is shifting. Things that were a generation ago just the norm, uh, a Christian worldview and so forth, are now the, are unusual and are not the norm. They're even called extremes at times. Uh, the changes, we see these changes all around us, we see it probably most dramatically among millennials. They're just the younger and up-and-coming up generation. I don't know if you know that, uh, that about 60 to 80% of millennials who grow up in churches that teach God's Word are leaving the church and not coming back, at least currently. Um, so as little as 20% overall of the next generation is continuing on. The attendance in church, not that that's the indicator of genuine faith, truth and love are, right? But attendance does say something the attendance among millennials is about half of what it was among their parents and grandparents. In some ways, it's no wonder though, because the world that they live and probably experience in a more profound way than the older generations is a world that's dramatically different than what has been experienced. The customs and perspectives are different. The social pressures are totally different. There's no longer a social pressure uh, to go to church. And the social pressures go the other way. The, the opinion of the church by those not in the church has shifted. And it's uh, shifting pretty negative. About a half uh, or so of those that, that wouldn't hold 
evangelical values, so the goodness and centrality of the good news of Christ is what I mean when I say evangelical, not the political word. But of those who wouldn't hold that, about a half would view the church, the rest of the church, as either neutral or negative. Not positive. That, that's a big shift. 53% of college professors have a, a profound negative view of the evangelical church. Uh, just this week, we heard a senator and presidential candidate, former presidential candidate, condemning essential and historic Christian views on salvation in Christ alone as hateful, indefensible, and un-American. And the shift in the area of sexual ethics is profound. The church is seen as old-fashioned at best, if not ignorant and bigoted. People are genuinely puzzled by the sexual ethics of the church. And they would, would not understand why we would hold, in their views, such narrow and even unnatural views of sexual ethics. So we live in a society that is increasingly hostile towards Christianity. Now there are answers for all these things in God's Word. And what people might think is not who we're called to be. God's Word guides us in who we are. It defines us. And it calls us to live a particular way in light of this sort of culture. And our section in Revelation, really the whole book of Revelation, teaches us how to live as faithful witnesses in a hostile and deceitful world. So let's pray and dig into Revelation chapter 2 to learn from God Himself what we're supposed to do as believers in such a time as this. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your timeless Word. Lord, You know what we need to hear. You know what we need to hear this morning. You know what Your church needs to hear. And Your Word is able and You are faithful. Thank You, Lord. And now, Lord, we ask for Your help. We need Your help to hear Your Word. We need Your help to humble our hearts and and be open to You. I need Your help to faithfully and clearly and appropriately communicate Your Word as well. So we look to You, Lord, and we're confident because You love Your church that You will help this local church right now as we're before Your Word. And in all this, Lord, we love You. We want to see You lifted up and glorified. And that's our prayer. In Christ's name, Amen. Chapter 2, verses 12-17. through Follow along with me. It says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp, sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. God's Word from Revelation chapter 2. I just want to dig into this. This this truth here that we are taught uh, how to be faithful witnesses in a sometimes hostile and deceitful 
world. So first, a hostile world. Jesus addresses this church in Pergamum. Pergamum was a city uh, that wasn't as large as Ephesus. It wasn't the largest city in the province, but it probably was the most important politically. It was a city uh, that was on a hill about a thousand feet high above the valley. It was terraced up, and at the top of the hill were temples to different gods and goddesses. And one particular temple related to Revelation, most importantly, it was a temple to the emperor and to the, to the Roma, the, the goddess of Rome. And so it was a, a seat of worship of Rome and, and obedience to Rome, and it was the seat of the Roman government. And that's what made Pergamon stand out in some ways. And so that's connected to what Jesus says to them. He notes where they dwell. He says two times in verse 13 that they live where Satan dwells. Can you imagine Jesus' address to us saying, I know where you live. You live where Satan dwells. This is church and Pergamum lived where Satan dwells. And he, he was alluding to the fact that it was a center of emperor worship. It was a place where the, where the Roman government was worshipped. The emperor himself worshipped as God. And the reality where they lived was there was tremendous pressure on them as the church to fall in line with emperor worship. To, to conform to society. And, and Jesus is saying that behind all this, behind this emperor worship, behind this pressure, is Satan himself. You guys live where Satan dwells. You live where there's a demonically inspired system putting pressure to oppress you and to, to basically usurp God and the worship of the Roman emperor. And they lived in that reality. They lived in it every day. They lived in the reality of living before Satan's throne. And the reality is that, that this sort of pressure is, is true for the whole church throughout time. Maybe not in the same intensity that Pergamum experienced, but it, it's a reality that to live in this world is to live where, in a place where Satan has his way to, to some degree. And Satan is behind systems and evil ways and evil pressures. In this case, for them, it was the Roman government. And they faced tremendous pressure. They, they were To not worship the emperor was considered bad citizenship. So you were considered un-Roman if you didn't bow to the emperor. And there would have been pressure like, come on, it really doesn't mean much. You don't even have to mean it. You know, just bow your knee to be done with it. You know, just, just show respect. There would have been pressure like that on them. There would have been pressure to conform to the whole system of, of pagan worship that went with everything in society. If you had a job, if you had a job in the trades, you were part of a union, a trade guild. And that union had a patron god, a patron deity that they worshipped. And that was a part of the life of that union, of that trade union. So to keep your job, you, you had to bend the knee to that deity. There was tremendous pressure to participate in the lifestyle that was there as well. Worshipping worshiping these foreign gods. And so this church lived where Satan dwells. It, it lived where, where Satan's system and his rebellion against God held sway. And that's the reality really for most of the church and most of the world. Many of our brothers and sisters right now live in similar circumstances. It's not worship of the Roman emperor. It's not worship of their particular pagan deities, but there are systems in place that oppose Christ and oppose truth. And people who are genuine believers live under those systems and are oppressed. In 2016, 90,000 Christians died for their faith. 
90,000. That's about one every six minutes. And if it was proportional here in the States, that would mean between six and 7,000 Christians would have died for their faith in the United States this past year. Could you imagine what that would be like if that were going on every year? Six to 7,000, right? So likely you would know one of them. They would be probably one in this area who had died for their faith. That's the reality right now for our brothers and sisters throughout the world. We live in a hostile world, guys. This is a reality. Now, it may not be as hostile for us right now, but there probably will come a time when it will be. And it is a present reality for most of the Christians throughout the world. And we ask, are you okay with that? And I don't mean that you are going to just simply give up and do nothing. I don't mean that. Are you okay with this being a reality of what it means to be a Christian in this world? It's fundamental to our identity that we live in a world run to some degree by the devil. Now God is in control above the devil and He's greater. The one who's in us is greater than the one in the world. But in God's providence, in His plan, He's allowed this situation to exist. And to be a Christian means to live in a hostile world. Are you okay with that? Do you think of your Christianity that way? Would you be willing to give up your life if called to do it? That's Christianity. That's basic biblical Christianity. And I just say it so, so you would adjust perhaps your expectations. If you are considering Christianity, we think there are lots of reasons to consider it, and it's all worth it. We'll get into that as we go through the message. But we need to tell you that there's a cost that you will have to pay. We can't tell you what degree of payment will be included in coming to Christ. It may be persecution, it may be your life, it might just be a hardship of other types. Christ never told people that those things wouldn't be part of the Christian faith. So, are you okay with that? We invite you to put your faith in Christ, but to consider those things. If you are a Christian, we need to just revisit that reality. Now, this world is hostile. This passage teaches us this. The whole Bible does. But he calls his church to be a faithful witness in a hostile world. So in the beginning, we, we learn about them living before the throne of Satan, but we learn about Antipas, who is a faithful witness. And Christ's commendation of Antipas is very strong. He, he says that he's not denied his name. He's not denied, Jesus says, my faith. You, you hold, yet you hold fast my name speaking to the whole church, and you do not, do not deny my faith. So these are, this is the name of Christ and the faith of Christ. Christianity is not simply our idea, it's God's idea. And they were faithful even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. He calls him my faithful witness. There's a sense that, of connection with Antipas. Jesus is really the ultimate faithful witness. Jesus is the one who is faithful to death. He proclaimed the truth he loved others. He loved his father faithfully to the point of death, even death on the cross. He gave up his life. He suffered on the cross. He died for our sins. He bore the, the holy justice of God. He was a faithful witness in all those things. He remained faithful to his father. He kept his eyes on the prize, on his father and on his people. And he was the faithful witness. And we as God's people are called to be faithful witness like Jesus to follow after Him and be the faithful witness to, to do the same. And, and really, the book of Revelation in many ways is, is about this idea of, of being faithful witnesses. Representing the truth and love of Christ in a world that can be hostile and is deceitful. 
Being a faithful witness means we hold on to Jesus as He holds on to us. We hold on to the truth of the Gospel. The truth of God's Word. The good news of Christ crucified for our sins. Raised from the dead, victorious over sin and death at the core of what we believe. And all that the Bible entails with that. This lifestyle. This radically different lifestyle. Of living for Him. Loving Him. Loving others. Laying our lives down for the good of others. This different morality than the world. All that's entailed with this we are called to follow and to hold on to these things. To, to keep hold of these things. To grasp them firmly and not let go. And as we do that, the, the truth of God must have its effect of creating people that love. Love God. That love each other deeply from the heart. Toby, thanks for your prophetic word. Um, it's just a picture of what we're called to. This, this love. We've been loved by Him so much. We turn towards each other and we live out this life of love one for another. No matter what it may cost us, by His grace, we lay our lives down for Him and for one another. And that, that love extends not just to us as the church, but to our community. The church is called to be a faithful witness in the community. We are to show that we are Christians by our love. By loving the community and laying our lives down for them as well. And serving them. And bringing them the truth. Risking friendships. Family relationships to, to bring the truth and to bring our love to serve and to help others. This is what it is to be a faithful witness. And, and this combination of truth and love standing amidst a hostile world is, the, is really the secret ingredient of the church throughout time. It's the miracle of the church throughout the ages. The church has done this. Early on in the Roman Empire, they stood strong. They loved and they spoke the truth. They took in the poor and the sick. They rescued babies abandoned to death. They loved people. They stayed in cities when famine came through those cities to care for others. They loved across ethnic and social lines. They treated women and the poor as full equals in all dignity. They stood out as faithful witnesses. And in time, God used that to win others to Himself. This continues to this day. It's going on now in the world. Maybe you've followed what's gone on in Egypt recently. Listen to the words of Father Bulls uh, George, a Coptic priest, who gave a message. This is just an excerpt from the message after the, the bombings that went on around Easter time. About 47 people died in that bombing. Uh, some of his own people, I imagine. About 100 altogether were hurt. And he gave a message the following Sunday, I believe, in, in, in which he said this. And we have this to project. He's speaking to the terrorists and he says, we love you. The second part of the message we want to send to you is that we love you. And this, unfortunately, you won't understand at all. Maybe you won't even believe us when we say we're grateful, but this you won't even understand. Why won't you understand it? Because this too is a teaching of our Christ. I want to explain to you about our Christ. I want to tell you about how wonderful He is. See what Christ said, if you love those who love you, you have no profit or reward with me. Even thugs and thieves love those who love them. Any gang loves its members. Even the drug dealers all like each other and take care of each other, right? But I want to tell you that if you love those who, who love you, what reward have you? But I say to you, love your enemies. We Christians don't have enemies. We don't have enemies. Others make enmity with us. The Christian doesn't make enemies because we are commanded to love everyone. And so we love you because this is the teaching of our God that I'm to love you no matter what you do to me. I love you very much and I want to say one last thing to you. We're praying for you. This is to the terrorists. 
Because the one who told us to love you told us to bless those who curse you and pray for those who spitefully use you. So my instructions from my loving God make it my duty to pray for you. He goes on to say, we need to pray for them so they can sleep at night. Now he's speaking to his congregation. A person who has all this inside of him, how can he sleep comfortably? Can you imagine? We are being slaughtered and the King of Peace gives us peace to sleep. And the one who slaughters all night, he can't sleep. You know where this happens in the Bible with Daniel and the king. Daniel's put in the lion's den and he stays up all night praising God and praying for the king. And the king's up all night tossing and turning, unable to sleep. Pray for them. Take it as a command. Take it as a duty. Take it as the application of Christ's instructions. We must all pray for them today that God opens their eyes and opens their hearts to His love. Because if they knew Him, they could never do this. I don't want to take too long. God comfort us. God give us understanding. God give us joy because Christ's promise is truth. He said, I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and your joy no one will take from you. I'm embarrassed to say at the beginning of Holy Week that the church, though she is in pain, rejoices because today, I don't know what the final count is, they said 40-something, and of course many people in the hospitals will catch up to them. All of these are crowns. They are rejoicing with God. And they will attend the resurrection up there. And they are praying for us. The rest is on us. Oh, you lucky, lucky, lucky ones. And until it is our turn, to our God be the glory now and forever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, let's follow the example of our Egyptian brothers and sisters as they remain faithful witnesses in a hostile and deceitful world. Christ goes on to instruct the church in Pergamum about the realities of this deceptive world. He goes on, uh, having commended the majority for being faithful witnesses, he brings a warning for a minority in the church that has an impact actually on the whole church. Verse 14, he says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So he commends the church for being a faithful witness living before the throne of Satan. They're faithful. But there's something that's coming in under the pressures that they live under that's infecting the church and if not dealt with will have a terrible effect. On them, he, he comes in and he uses the story of Balaam and Balak. Maybe you're not familiar with that story. It's a story in the Old Testament in, in Numbers. And, and the story, Numbers 25, it's a story where uh, there's the nation of Moab. They, the king of Moab, Balak, wants to curse Israel because Israel's coming into the Promised Land. And he's opposing them. He doesn't want them to come in. He doesn't want their ways. And so he hires this guy, Balaam, to come in and curse them. Now, Balaam is kind of a spiritual guy, a seer of sorts, not, not of the God of Israel, but, but a seer like a psychic, perhaps we might say. And so he hires him to come in and to curse Israel. He wants, he wants Balaam to go up and curse Israel and kind of bring down curses from the spiritual world on Israel that they might not be successful. And every time Balaam goes to curse Israel, blessings come out of his mouth. He, he can't help but bless and speak God's intention for Israel. And he tries that multiple times and it never works and Balak gets all frustrated. And then the story kind of ends, but you can find elsewhere in Scripture what Balaam ends up doing is he says, you know what? I can't curse Israel, but if you can get Israel to sin against God, then God will have to deal with them and that will be their undoing. And so he convinces the Moabites to infiltrate Israel with, with women. Uh, and, and in their culture and so forth, there was promiscuity and, and sex 
connected to temple worship. So, so basically he says, tempt them, go in there and lure the, the Israelite men to these women, call, cause them to c- commit sexual immorality and be drawn into temple worship of, of these false gods of, of Baal. And then you'll get them that way. And that's what happens actually. They come under this plan and, and this temptation and many are led astray and it, and it does cause great harm to Israel. God deals with it in time. He's faithful to deal with His people. No plan of man can succeed against God and His people. But it does have a profound effect. So Jesus is referencing that story and He's connecting that to the, their modern day version under the heresy of the Nicolaitans. So He says, so also, so in comparison, so also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans were a, a cult, a heresy, or really a, a group, a subgroup within the Christians. I wouldn't quite call them a cult, but a heresy within the Christians that had similar things that they were doing. And, and it looks like from what we can tell that at the heart, the Nicolaitans are what we call antinomian. Antinomian simply means against the law. And, and it's the idea that can arise in Christianity, often does among Christians, that if you really understand grace, you don't need to worry about the law. And there's truth in it, actually. The amazing, wonderful good news is that Christ came where we failed. He came and He obeyed His Father. He loved others perfectly. He fulfilled the commandments. He fulfilled all righteousness. He was the perfect human in in obedience and and had this life that was tremendously worthy as a man and certainly as the God-man. Infinitely worthy. And then He offered up that righteous life on the cross to pay for the sins of any and all who would come to Him and, and realize their need to be rescued from sin. Sin is anything we do in opposition to God's good ways. It's failure to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The only right and reasonable response to an infinitely glorious and good God, we know from creation, right? He's good to us. The only right response is to love Him dearly. And yet we fall short of that. And to love one another. To fail to love one another as our neighbor, basically. As ourselves. Uh, that's what sin is. It's, it's rebelling against God and, and failure in that. And we all have sinned to an even great degree if we were honest and looked at our own souls. And you know, if we were to have next Sunday, I've used this before, you know, we're, we're going to have a projection of all the things you've thought this past week up here on the screen. You wouldn't show up on that Sunday, I don't think. I wouldn't. Uh, if we look in our own hearts, we see there's sin. So Christ came in God's amazing love to live this righteous life that we never could, to never fail, to love, and to offer that up on the cross and to shed His blood and to pay for our sins. To pay the just penalty, which is, which is exile from God. It's, it's to be punished by God and, and righteous. Not, a, not a, a petty punishment, but a holy justice. To respond in, in exile. And that's, what, that's what hell is. If we continue to live in our sin, we will live in our sin forever, exiled from God and, and away from Him. And that's the worst punishment we could ever have. All His goodness. But Christ came to rescue us, to give His life, to shed His blood. And He offered that righteous life. It pays for our sins and it satisfies God's demand for humanity to be good and righteous. So if you trust in Christ, you are covered by His blood and righteousness. You are forgiven for your sins and you are treated by God because you're joined to Christ through faith as if you had lived His righteous life. God treats you as righteous in Christ. Now that righteousness works out in our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit in us. But you are treated the day you believe as righteous for Christ's sake. And so you can kind of see where the Nicolaitans get things, right? Because if you're, if you're forgiven, if you're counted righteous, then there's no more penalty for sin. 
if you're truly forgiven. And Jesus basically passed the test for you. So don't worry about it. That's grace. You're forgiven. You're free. you got to get out of jail free card. You can carry around with you. And if you are a genuine believer, that's true. So antinomians and Nicolaitans basically say, well, it doesn't matter then. The law doesn't matter. This new life of obedience doesn't matter ultimately because Christ has paid for your sins and you're forgiven and free. But they fail to recognize the teaching of Scripture that for the one that has come to Christ, you have been joined by Him and you have been changed by Him. You have so united with Him that you actually have died on the cross to your old way and your sin and you have been raised again with Him in resurrection life. You have a new creation. You are a new creation in Him. And one day that creation will be complete. You will have a new body and live with Him in a resurrected body. But you are a new creation. You are not the old man. You're a new man. So how could you ever go back to that way? How could you ever think that that was okay? You are called to something much better. And the very reason that you're rescued is to put off the old man, to put on the new man, to live in Him. That's the truth of Scripture. And so the Bible is very rigorous in its call to be holy, to walk out your new life. But the Nicolaitans were latching onto this idea of grace, saying it doesn't matter. Now it's really convenient, isn't it, when you live in a hostile world to have a doctrine like the Nicolaitans? It doesn't really matter if you bow to Satan, to the emperor. You're forgiven. You're free. It'd be a lot easier just to bow. I mean, you don't really believe it. It doesn't matter. Just do it. And, you know, don't worry about the sexual ethics thing in Christianity. It's a little too tough. We, we get it. It's too hard, you know. And we know that, you know, part of being part of that trade guild is you attend those orgies, those parties and stuff. So don't worry about it. You're forgiven. You're free. That's what looks like what was going on with the Nicolaitans. Now, this was a small group in the church, but it was having an effect on them. It was having an effect on the church as well. It was a reality. The ethics of the world had infiltrated the church and the church was compromising thinking it was okay. And that's what Jesus is going after here. Is that similar to our time? I think so a little bit, isn't it? Not quite the same. Not a one for one. We don't have Nicolaitans in our midst and we don't have maybe the excesses. But we live in a, in a world where there are pressures and there are different sexual ethics around us. And there's pressure to conform to those ethics, aren't there? There's lots of pressure. Our society is full of sexual temptation that's only increasing. We live in a, in a culture that more or less says sex is a good thing as long as it's consensual and safe. And that old Christian ethic of you know, within marriage between a man and a woman only, that, that's just oppressive. And it just leads to all this this perversion and abuse, you know, this Victorian ethic is just does not help. It doesn't lead to sexual wholeness. It destroys us. That's what the world says. That's how they see it. That's not how the Bible sees it, but that's how they see it at times. That's, the, that's what's out there. And with that, there's the epidemic of pornography through the internet, through what's, things that have always been there, but now through the internet. The majority of men and a significant amount of women weekly view pornography. And it includes Christians as well. It's the new normal have seen hundreds, perhaps even thousands of images of, of what really should be described as extreme sexual acts. That's the new normal. The sexual ethics of our culture has gone to the point where they are driving basic American values and, and, and liberty itself. Liberty itself is more now about sexual liberty at the core of our liberty as Americans, what we understand as our rights and liberties more so than religious liberties. 
Sexual liberty is trumping religious liberty right now. That's just where the culture is. It's the new normal to sleep around. The majority of Americans consider it perfectly fine. The average young adult will have had eight sex partners. More than half the couples live together before marrying, and about 40% of the children are born to unmarried parents. That's what's going on out there. Now, I don't share this to be old-fashioned or to make you feel bad. But the Bible does call us to something radically different, and God gives us grace to live that out. I share it just so you would understand that this passage in Revelation 2 applies to us a lot more than we may think. We live in a society where there's tremendous pressure to conform to a very different and unbiblical sexual ethic. Now, it probably would be good for me just briefly to talk about the biblical sexual ethic, the biblical view on sexuality. Uh, sorry, that, uh, just to let you know, this will not be rated R. Um, it'll be more PG. But there are times when we, we preach the Word and we're faithful and it is rated R, but not, not this. So, but anyhow, God's view on sex is definitely not Victorian. The Bible is very explicit on sex. It celebrates sex, actually. There's a whole book in the Bible dedicated to married sex. A whole book, Song of Solomon. And, and it probably means a lot more than you know it, or it means, actually. If you study it, you'll find out. It's pretty explicit through poetic forms. Because God created sex. It's a good thing. It's to be celebrated, but it's intended in a certain context. The summary of Scripture, really, on, on sex, really, and the design of God is that he, he intends that the very intimacy of the Trinity that we in Christ are now brought into, the bride of Christ is brought in to the intimacy of the Trinity. The very intimacy of the Trinity, the, the destiny of humanity really, is to be brought into oneness with God. John 17 teaches us that. We are brought into the oneness, this eternal oneness and intimacy that's glorious and beautiful in the Trinity. We are brought in through Christ. And we get to know Him at this deep level. It's going to be great. Heaven is going to be incredible. Way better than the best sex you would ever would have on earth. Sex is actually meant to point towards that intimacy. Now, it's, that intimacy won't be sexual. It'll be spiritual, but it'll be deep and glorious. And God's design in creating us male and female is to image Him. In particular, in the context of marriage, marital love, a man and a woman committed to each other, experiencing deep intimacy. Imaging the intimacy we will have for eternity with God. Marriage points to heaven. That's God's design in marriage. Sex is meant for marriage, for a man and a woman. Now, outside of that context, there is intimacy. It's different. It's not sexual. So we are called and invited into an intimacy of just as brothers and sisters of, in humanity, there's a friendship that we should have. And in the church, there's a, a family intimacy. We are brothers and sisters. And that's the standard. It's with absolute purity, though. There's no sexual connotation there. But it's as brothers and sisters. So that means we're still men and women, right? But, but there's not a sexual element. There's intimacy in that. That's God's design for human relationships. And I think you can see from that just His intention for us to experience this and to look forward to the ultimate experience. And anything short of that mars the image of God in us. We're made male and female for this context. So when we deviate from His intentions in terms of sexual ethics, we mar the image of God and we insult the intimacy of God itself. And that's why the Bible is so interested in sexual purity. That's why it's that important. 
It's not because we're Victorian and old-fashioned. Let's not be that. Let's honor the Scriptures. Let's live this biblical ethic out. Let's be faithful in marriage. Let's be brothers and sisters outside of marriage. And as we wrestle with these real drives that can be challenging at times, let's look forward and put our hope in what it's ultimately pointing towards. Intimacy with God. We're going to see here the cure for sexual immorality is, is an intimacy with God Himself. So this is the reality, guys. They, they, they faced it. We live in it as well. And so, I just want to ask, will you determine by God's grace to resist the snare of sexual immorality? Will you reject the lie of the Nicolaitans thinking it just doesn't really matter? You'll be forgiven. Don't worry. Will you reject that lie and instead lock arms with trusted brothers or sisters and resist the tide of the culture as you depend on the grace of God? That's God's call to us and He will give us grace. Finally, learning to be faithful witnesses in a hostile and deceptive world, we encounter Christ Himself in this passage granting us powerful motivation and a warning and a promise of reward to us. So he says in verse 12, and to the angel of the church in Pergamon write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. So Jesus has this sword. The, the image that John sees is the sword's coming out of his mouth. It's the Word of God standing at, in truth and in judgment. And he says, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. The Pergamon Christians would have been very familiar with the Roman sword. The Roman sword was the symbol of their authority and the symbol of their ability to inflict harm on those who don't follow their ways. So in living before Satan's throne, they were ever aware of Roman sword, saying, if you don't worship the emperor, you're going to get the sword eventually. Jesus is saying there's a bigger reality here. The sword of my mouth, the sword of God, the Word of God, and, and my role as, as judge. And that should motivate us more than the Roman sword. To know that He cares about these things and He will judge. And so He warns those in Pergamum to, to repent. The ones that are engaging in this Nicolaitan heresy and really the, the church in any way it might be supporting that is to repent. And He says if they will not, He will come and, uh, to them soon and war against them with the sword of His mouth. I don't think He's meaning I will come again soon like in my return at the final judgment. I think He means I'm going to come to you soon. Like in the next few months or year, if you continue, I'm going to come and deal with you. There will be judgment of sorts. Now, we don't know how he will do that, but it's a scary prospect to be judged by Christ. He judges the church for our good, he disciplines the church, he loves us, he doesn't let us get away with things. And he will not let this church get away with things. So he's going to come and deal with them in some temporal way. We see that elsewhere in Scripture, 1 Corinthians 11. The church in Corinth gets judged by the Lord. They gets disciplined by the Lord. Now, they still belong to the Lord, but He disciplines them as His children. And He does it because in their particular context, they were disregarding Christ's presence among them during communion. They were disregarding His presence through the celebration of the sacrament itself, but also in, they're ignoring the poor among them because communion is a celebration of being one with Christ and one together across social and ethnic lines. And so they were abusing that both in their disregard for Christ being present and their disregard for one another. And so Paul says to them that many are weak and ill and some have died. That's scary stuff. 
That's what Christ means when He's warning the Pergamum church. This is the zeal He has for His bride. He loves His people. He will bring discipline, even sickness, even death if needed. Now, I don't know for sure, but I in my lifetime have seen things that look like this. I've seen people die. Who, From what I could tell, that this is part of what was going on. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not the one to know that. But it does go on. I've seen whole churches disciplined. Their doors shut. Churches shut down because of things in, in the church and in the life of the church that re, they refuse to repent of. So we need to recognize that a motivation to run away from the Nicolaitans is just the fear of Christ, right? It's just knowing He's serious. And He will deal with His church. So let's run away from that stuff. Let's have nothing to do with it. He's holy and He's the righteous judge, but He's also the gracious rewarder. And there are promises here that are just fantastic. He says in verse 17, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Jesus promises to them hidden manna. Manna was the bread-like stuff that, that Israel was given in the desert as God took them to the promised land. He fed them. He cared for them. They ate a heavenly bread. It came down from heaven. It was miraculous. And they got it every day. Every day God fed them. Except for one on, on the Sabbath. Uh, they would have double on Friday. And then on, Sabbath, on Saturday they would eat what was left over. But he fed them and took care of them. And there was a legend among the people at the time, that revelation was written among, among the Jews, that, that after the temple was destroyed, that jar of manna that was originally in the Ark of the Covenant in the temple uh, was taken by Jeremiah and buried somewhere. There was this hidden manna somewhere. And the legend was that when Messiah came back, that it would be uncovered and the manna would be redistributed to God's people. That's the hidden manna. So I think that's what he's alluding to, but it's not about the legend. It's about what it represents. Because we know the manna is Christ Himself, isn't it? Isn't it? Jesus is the bread of life. He gives Himself for us. He gave Himself on the cross for us. He gives Himself for us. He is the bread of life. And in Him there's life and forgiveness and sustenance. And really right now, the, 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 time, the immediate time you believe in Him, you receive that bread of life. You get to feed on Him right away. And we live that way throughout our Christian life. And when we go to heaven, we'll know it in its fullness. That hidden manna will be an unbelievable experience. We will feast on Christ as we behold Him in all His goodness and glory and love and truth. As He renews creation, we will feast and be satisfied. And so the promise here is a, is a motivation to turn away from the ways of the world to the ways of Christ. Don't seek to feast on popularity and acceptance and culture. Don't cease to feast on sexual immorality. Feast on me. I am the bread of life. The hidden man. He also says that he will give them a, a stone, a white stone. And in that day, they, uh, the victors in athletic events would receive a white stone and it was a, a ticket, basically, to get into a great banquet in their honor. Brothers and sisters, there's a banquet awaiting you. In Christ. In your honor, your name, you have a special invitation if you are a believer and you endure to the end and prove that you genuinely are a believer. You have a special invitation inviting you to a feast that will never end. You have something much better than this world offers in Christ, in the feast, and in all His promises, in knowing Him that grants you power 
and the will and the ability and the grace, the actual grace, to be a faithful witness in a hostile and deceitful world. If the band could come up as we close. Pastor Thomas Chalmers said in his famous sermon, The Expulsive Power of a Superior Affection, the following. If you could put this up. Thank you. We only cease to be the slave of one appetite because another taste has brought it into subordination. A youth may cease to idolize sensual pleasure, but it's only because the idol of material gain has gotten the ascendancy. There is not one personal transformation in which the heart is left without an object of ultimate beauty and joy. Its desire for one particular object may be conquered, but its desire to have some object is unconquerable. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. And that's why I finish as I do and as the text does with the promise of the hidden manna and the white stone. There's something much better than anything else you might long for. And Christian, your power to endure... To stand as a faithful witness comes as you feast on this one that is more glorious than anything else that would be offered to you. When you know that you have Him and you enjoy Him, you are willing to, to endure and to even die for your faith because you have something much better. So as we conclude and we prepare for communion and over the next song, I just want to ask you to just to search your own heart. If there is something for you that is luring you away or, or attracting your affection and attention more than Christ ultimately, this message is for you. And that would be all of us to some degree at some point, right? But if there's something right now, I just bring it before the Lord. and Say, Lord, forgive me. And give me a hunger for You. Give me grace. So as we prepare to take communion, we are saying as we take communion, we receive Christ. He's the one we feast on more than any. We find our life in Him. So let's prepare our hearts to do that as we sing and then enter into communion.